As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Total Soccer Show's Euro 2020 coverage. The round of 16 is a going concern, but Wales are not. Robert's team aren't on the same page as Denmark make Wales wail. The fearsome Danes got to force them and end the brave wait for their first knockout uh, game in the Euros in 29 years. <laughs> and they're looking malgot, which is Danish. Look it up. Read a book. We're recording this before uh, Italy versus Austria as well, so we don't know the score of that one yet, but... Congratulations to Italy for reaching the quarterfinals. Hope that doesn't come back to bite me. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is your friend and mine, Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Ryan. I was excited to see if you would even mention Italy-Austria or if that would be left to me. But since you've mentioned it, I don't have to do an elaborate intro when I take over for that game. Well, let's see. If, if, if Italy don't win, you might have to sort of paste over what I just said. Let's be fair. <laughs> ah, yes. Making a note of that. <laughs> Making a note of that. So as a little treat for all TSS hosts today, I went on the Danish name generator today, Taylor. Would you like to know your Danish name? Casper. Is it Casper Kasperson? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is Kai Johansson. Kai is smart, creative, and unconventional. He's also neat, hardworking, and controlled. This means he's highly productive and driven creatively. He's able to follow through and complete creative projects with relative ease. He's a classic liberal with balanced politics. Ugh, lib. I mean, I'll take that. I think my, my, my father, Frederick, is going to be a little bit bummed to hear about Johan. But uh, aside from that, I, I think I'll take that name. Kai Johansson from here forward, Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> also here we have Joe Lowry, also known as Alex Knudsen. Hello, Alex. <laughs> hey, Ryan. Uh, I, I like it. I'm going to reprint all the business cards that I have. I don't have any business cards, but I'm going to print some with my new Danish name on it, darn it. 
Mm, get them nice and embossed with Alex Knudsen. Uh, preferred jobs, by the way, if you want to get... This is absolutely serious. I have not uh, messed with this at all, Joe. Would you like to hear your preferred jobs? Scientist, I... <laughs> forensic anthropologist, systems analyst, philosopher, nuclear engineer, political analyst, researcher, statistician, statistician here we go, scholar, research scientist, computer scientist, and I'm not making this up, dictator. <laughs> oh yes I was waiting I was thinking I'm not really good at any of these things I'm not really good at any of these things dictator now that one is firmly in my wheelhouse Ryan whose <laughs> preferred job is dictator why is that on mine, the website mine is me a man me, with a vision me. Ryan Bailey a man with a vision goodness me name generators for fun.com if you don't believe me uh, Graham Ruffin uh, you're here with us as well or shall we call you Kristen Stephenson I mean that's easier for Americans to say than my actual name so let's go with that <laughs> let's do it uh, your five big personality traits according to this website Graham uh, you have openness uh, you have conscientiousness uh, what you do not have is extrovertedness or agreeableness <laughs> I mean, that's scarily uh, accurate, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe I've been living the, the wrong life my, my whole life. Maybe I am <laughs> Danish, and that is my name. And in case you're interested, I am Noah Askelson. My preferred jobs are casting director, film critic, wedding planner, or teacher. Hmm. Ryan, I'm not going to lie. I kind of zoned out in the beginning of this one. What is this site? <laughs> Like, I'm familiar with name generators. I wasn't ready for it to give me, like, a whole backstory. Like, so this, this is some born Identity stuff right here. This name generator also generates a fun background story for you in which it scarily predicts uh, accurate <laughs> things, such as Joe being a dictator. Okay. Well, and, and, and Ryan, as this wedding planner, maybe you could consult with Graham and his wife about maybe creating some sort of more elaborate celebration for any future no, parties or anniversaries so. outside, of, outside of just a handshake. I think you could have revamped that ceremony. I'm not wow. an extrovert though, so that's there's going to be a problem with that. So, <laughs> two handshakes. <laughs> Ooh, spicy. <laughs> oh, it's getting racy already in here. Are we all refreshed, by the way, gents? It's been a couple of days since we last convened for this. We had 13 days in a row. Taylor, how are you feeling, my friend? I feel pretty good. Uh, I, I am back to my usual recording setup, which is nice, not having to scramble last minute, not having to basically talk loudly into a shared wall with my niece, who, when I emerged from recording, said, is your job to yell a bunch? And I was like, not really. No, I'm not supposed to do that. I think maybe I got a little too animated. So it's nice to be back in my normal environs for the start of the knockout round. That's my job, by the way. Joe, how are you yeah. feeling? I'm feeling good. I very much enjoyed the last couple of days. I watched a little Major League Soccer, but I tried to distance myself as much as I could from the soccer world. I'm coming back refreshed and excited. <laughs> Joe, I've completely forgotten MLS is happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to lie. It's just, it's just too much soccer. I saw that there, was, there were games happening the other night, and I went, nah. I just can't. <laughs> so I, I admire your commitment. Thank you. Sounds like you're refreshed as well then, Graham. I mean, I've just been drunk the whole time for the last two days, but that's been fine. That's <laughs> refreshed. Days. Yeah, that's just that's refreshment for Scots. <laughs> well, you're no doubt refreshed, uh, Graham, as a fellow home nation has exited the competition. That nation being Wales, of course, losing four nil to Denmark in Amsterdam. Uh, what was supposed to be interesting about this game is it wasn't in Copenhagen, where the Danes have had massive home support, but they kind of had home advantage here because Welsh fans were not allowed to travel to Amsterdam. Thanks Brexit, done us another favour there. Um, and, and yeah, so so they very much had the home advantage at the stadium there. Um, two goals here from Dolbear and a late one. 
from Marlott and Brace Rate as well. We had two Leicester goalkeepers, Danny Ward and Schmeichel, on the field as well. That was fun. Um, Joe, I'll come to you first. Wales, what did you make of them? Seemed to start quite strong. The opening sort of 20 minutes or so were pretty good and then just decided to be all over the place and not create anything for the rest of the game. The way you summarize that, Ryan, is very, very similar to everything I thought about Wales in this game. They came out in a back four, which is the shape that they've used most often in this tournament. They had a little deviation against Italy where they went with a hybrid back five, back four with Ampadu stepping forward. Then he had the red card in that game, so we didn't see him in this one against Denmark. But I thought Wales started really, really well, and they were playing to their strengths early on, and one of their biggest strengths is set pieces. And in the first five minutes, they had a couple of set pieces. They were drawing fouls. They were getting into the attacking third and really causing Denmark some problems. They were on the front foot early on in this game. They were winning balls in midfield. They were getting out in transition a little bit and they were holding the ball. And then that all kind of faded away as Denmark made a a creative tactical change that I'm sure we'll talk about later. Denmark then got a little bit more control of the game and started to pass through Wales's defensive shape. And then it was kind of done because once, once this Wales team goes down goals, they really struggle to get back into games in open play. They don't have a ton of quality in possession. They don't have an overwhelming ability to break a team down. And especially once they went down 2 to nothing early on in the second half, it was always going to be really hard for them to claw their way back into this game, and they didn't. Graham, you described uh, Wales as being a bit Scottish in our, in our WhatsApp chat from this one. Is that, is that on the basis that, um, that Joe just mentioned there? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've seen this performance before at this tournament where a team starts relatively well, but kind of through a sense of just them having adrenaline and and being up for it and then kind of just gets outplayed by the better structured team with the better individual talent. And then towards the end, Wales lost their heads a little bit and lost their composure. And that's very much what Scotland did at this tournament, particularly in the, the games against Czech Republic and Croatia. So yes, I thought this was a very Scottish performance. By Wales, and, and I'm, I'm glad, Joe, that you mentioned how Wales started the game because I, the the way that Denmark dominated the the kind of maybe the the last two thirds of this match means that it's quite it's quite easy to forget how Wales started, and they they did start well. There were good signs for Wales yeah. early on. Connor Roberts was getting high up the pitch. Um, I thought Denmark were going for a team that that um, was playing without Yusuf Poulsen and and Casper uh, Dahlberg comes into this match. I, I thought that showed Denmark were gonna they were ready to, to kinda keep the ball on the on the ground and, and attack with speed. But the early stage of this of this match I was surprised by how many long passes they were playing into Casper Dogberg and I thought actually that Denmark had got this wrong. But Casper Hulmand I was saying in the in the group chat, I've been hugely impressed with him. Obviously um originally in Euro twenty twenty Agatha Ryder was meant to be the Denmark manager. So I think I said in my preview that while Denmark were a, were a good team, I, I, there was a he was a bit of an unknown. People didn't really know how he was going to adapt to the role. I've been super impressed with how he has tactically changed games, not just from game to game and his team selection, but in game as well, and the way that he moved Andreas Christensen up into the midfield here. Yeah, Casper Hillman definitely getting some attention in this tournament. Taylor, I think you felt the same way about him. Um, Tottenham, you mentioned, are looking for a manager. They have asked most uh, humans at this point. We've all been asked a couple of times if we want to be Tottenham manager. (laughs) He must have been asked at this point as well, right? I would assume so. I mean, they've asked everyone except for uh, Jurgen Klinsmann. Apparently, that was a bridge too far. Uh, (laughs) But yes, and I do feel like Hillman, like there's always the post-tournament 
team that sort of like turned a lot of heads, got a lot of attention. It's usually a team or a player. Sometimes it's a manager who then gets a lot of speculation about their next move. And so maybe I'm falling victim to that here. But I think what he has done with this Danish team, who were playing very well coming into the tournament, or strongly enough at least, and then to have Christian Eriksen go out the way he does, to lose that first match, to fight back and try to get something against Belgium, but be sort of beaten by two moments of genius from Kevin De Bruyne, or very high skill level from Kevin De Bruyne, but then still keep changing, keep adjusting, keep finding those little ways to impact the game in the way they need to, such that they're able to eventually advance, and now here they are. And I think the way he has changed it up, and he doesn't have uh, what Voss for this game, he doesn't have Paulson due to injury and illness, uh, and and to still have a team that is up for it, that seem like they've played together very cohesively, and then to have a team that is very adaptable, as Graham mentioned, and I think Joe alluded to, starting in a back three, but then having Andreas Christensen step out and be that holding midfielder to sort of crowd the midfield, but also link what Denmark were trying to do when transitioning to attack. I just think he made really smart adjustments, and for... A team that have, like, with without Christian Eriksen, a lot of very strong components, but I would say no sort of Gareth Bale figure around whom the entire team is built, that he could then go out and get a result and make things happen and make this team play as well as they have. That feels like a thing that resonates at club level and getting sort of the the parts of a unit to come together to play greater than they should. That feels like a thing he's done here and could maybe do at club level. Definitely so, yeah. And I, I want to talk much more about Denmark, of course. But Taylor, I just wanted to ask you also, uh, have you got any more thoughts about Wales and um, what they put out here? It just seemed like they couldn't yeah. create much at all in this game. Uh, defending obviously left a lot to be desired at certain points, certainly the second goal. And I think it was Graham pointed out, Connor Roberts was, was, was a high point for them and Gareth Bale had a decent early chance. We can also talk about Gareth Bale's throw-ins, by the way, because that was another conversation we were having. <laughs> well, I think it, it, it connects. Yeah, we were just got, like uh, Gareth Bale doing the long throws, and I'm pretty sure they were all illegal, but no one's ever going to call that. But when the ball has that much spin and it's coming over a shoulder as opposed to over the head, probably yeah. not technically legal. But I would say like it does sort of get to the issue for me when it comes to this Wales team, which is that when we saw them in 2016 be this surprise team that made the run they made, it was... A roughly similar approach of kind of defensive, counterattacking, using those flair players that they had to find a way to get results. But it was also such a focus on set pieces. And we had the the phrase then, the Welsh tactical column, because every single set piece they would line up in like a line of four. And then each player had a different responsibility as to where they needed to run. And they had a lot of different approaches to that. So they had a ton of variation in those set pieces. And they were, that's... Maybe a small thing when it comes to corners and set pieces, but a larger point there being that they had approaches for when they could get into attacking situations that put them in more ideal situations, that they had different looks. And this Wales team I saw use Dan James's pace, use Aaron Ramsey and Gareth Bale's technical ability, and then cross the ball, put it in the mixer and hope something happens. And aside from that, there wasn't much else there, especially today. And I think they missed some of that sort of like uh, rigidity and that tactical approach to set pieces that gave them an advantage here. I don't think they had it. I think Denmark did. And you saw the difference. The line of four and that rigidity, Taylor, I think that's because they all play rugby and that's a line out. They were just lining up for basically. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Joe, let's talk about Denmark. Then they look very impressive. Last couple of games, the last two games, the game against uh, Russia, wasn't it? And then this one, they look pretty fantastic playing some good looking soccer here. Very positive stuff. It's amazing, Joe, that they're doing this very much without their star player and considering the journey they've been on. 
It's incredible. It is downright incredible how they've responded from the Christian Eriksen incident all the way into this game. We talked about this being a great draw for Denmark and Wales being a capable team, but this was always a winnable game for Denmark. And they came out and they didn't start well. We've already kind of been over that from a Wales perspective. And they, they didn't get out on the front foot. But then about 12 minutes into this game, and I went back and rewatched, so I'm pretty sure it's right around the 12th or 13th minute, we see Andreas Christensen shift inside to that number six spot. And he did something very similar against Russia in possession. But in this game, he just moved to be a straight up number six in possession and out of possession. And I think that move for Denmark allowed them to gain a little bit more control of this match. And they added another number in midfield naturally, and that helped them match up a little bit better against Wales's three central midfielders, Joe Morrell, Aaron Ramsey, and Joe Allen. Now Denmark had Thomas Delaney, they had Hoiberg, and they had Christensen in those spaces. They started to use those midfielders to progress the ball more, to cause uh, trouble for Wales defensively. And then on the goal, we see it's an 18-pass sequence, and it comes from a midfield overload. They have the three midfielders that I've just talked about, and then Domsgaard drifts into that space as well to form almost a diamond in midfield, giving Denmark an advantage, allowing them to play through that space. I don't think that goal comes about if Christensen doesn't move into that sixth spot and give them additional numbers in that space. And that's just one example of how they used the ball to break Wales down. They did it a bunch of times in this game. They looked consistently threatening with the ball, I thought, kind of after the the 15th or the 20th minute. And that's what we've seen from them in a lot of this tournament so far. They are a dangerous team in possession and a darn a darn good team overall. Graham, uh, Martin Braithwaite, I saw you tw- tweet about him and how he needs more credit. He did get his goal in the end in this one. A little bit about what he does for this team. I just think Brathwaite is a very intelligent player. So he, he knows where, where the space is. So a lot of times in this game, we saw him bursting to the, to the byline and he's, he's made a fe- that a feature of his play throughout this tournament. Um, his final product often is lacking, particularly in terms of cutting edge. And that's the one criticism you would make of him. And that's the one thing kind of Barcelona fans will, will recognize of him is that he doesn't score enough goals. But I think he's a much better player than a, than a lot of people give him credit for. And I thought this was another really good, um, performance from him. That front three of, of Damsgaard, who by the way, his agent's going to be busy this summer. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Damsgaard, Casper Dolberg, who I know has not been, has not been starting so far, but I thought he did a very good job. And then Brathwaite, it just always feels like, Brathwaite adds to the balance of the the attacking unit. You know, he 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 has a bit of pace. Um, as I say, he can he can burst to the byline. He can cut inside like he did for the the goal that he ultimately scored on his left foot, which he took really well. He was unfortunate with another chance before then. So, yeah, I I, I think Brathwaite. Um, English fans in particular just can't get over the fact that he wasn't very good for Middlesbrough. And, and you're like, that was, that was so long ago. <laughs> like, a player can change and can be, it can improve. And, and I, th- I think, um, looking at the, on the, on the club side of things, Barcelona, um, there'd be a lot of players that I'd get rid of before Brathwaite at Barcelona. I, th- I, th- I think he's a, he's a really good player. And I'm, I'm pleased that at this tournament, he seems to be showing that. Graham, and yeah. then I'm always interested in the sort of like, off-ball moments, the little things aside from what he's doing to create or score goals or link up play or what it might be. And there's one little moment in the f- like first minute of injury time in the first half. Uh, basically, Mela gets... It's that cross that comes in that Wales can't deal with, and it's it's Mela and it's Brethwaite at the back post. Mela ends up getting it and shoots near post. I think it gets pushed wide for a corner, but Brethwaite is there. He had dropped off a little bit, and if that ball were squared to him, he has a very 
not easy, but a much more simple angle to finish with his instep, and the ball doesn't come, and you can see him sort of show, like, hey, I was here. Mela holds the hand up saying, like, yeah, I know I should have done better. And then there's an instant, like, applause, like, no, good job. And I think that's just such an important little thing of to not just be screaming and angry and make your teammate feel that pressure, but to remind them you're there in a friendly but stern way and then also encourage them at the same time. It was it was yeah. just a, like, a necessary amount of positive energy at a time when Denmark were only up 1-0. And that's that's not un- uncommon for Brathwaite. I mean, people forget one of the, the, the reasons he's at Barcelona is that a certain Lionel Messi can play with Martin Brathwaite. The mm-hmm. two of them get on well. And as we all know, that's, you know, Messi's not the easiest player to play alongside. And, and I, I see a lot of the qualities that I've watched from him at, at, at Barcelona in his performances for Denmark. He's just a little bit more prominent, maybe because obviously Denmark aren't as good as Barcelona, but he's, he's having a really good tournament. Joe, uh, Denmark having a really good tournament as well. Um, can we talk about the progress they've made throughout this tournament? Losing to Finland in less than ideal circumstances in the opener, then following up with the loss to Belgium, then that big win over Russia, and then this. What kind of arc have we seen in this team? What kind of changes have we seen, Joe? It's weird because I don't really think we've seen a major arc here. And it, it's it's funny because we obviously had that incredible major incident in the first game for them. But they've played well throughout this entire tournament. They created chances against Finland in a game where they really had no reason to be out there on the field at all. And it's an incredibly challenging circumstance. But, I mean, they've been good over and over and over again. They came out against Belgium and were incredibly strong. They were they were the better team in that first half and had some good moments in the second half. Then against Russia, they just ran right through them, right? And we saw that again with Wales after the first 20 minutes today. We've seen consistently good performances from Denmark. Tactically, we, we have seen a couple of tweaks. They started in a back four in game one, and then it's been a back three in other moments. And then Christian and stepping forward in a midfield. So there have been tweaks from game to game. But man, I just can't get over the fact that this team has been good in pretty much every single game they've played in. Or I think they have been good in every game they've played in. And pretty much the better team for large stretches of each of those games. And uh, Taylor, how about Wales' evolution throughout this tournament? What have we seen from them, do you think? Have they had any evolution? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think again, like to bring it all the way back to Graham's point about like being similar to Scotland, I'm not trying to... Uh, to bring about more negativity for Graham. But I will say that I think the point there was that it felt like a team that sort of knew they were beaten on the day. And I think you can just see that in little moments. Like the uh, the second goal, I think, is is Nico Williams when he goes to try to clear that ball and basically clears it right back to Casper Dolberg, who settles and finishes. And taking nothing away from the fact that he settles and finishes that quickly, that skillfully, it's also like the first lesson you learn is never clear the ball central, never try to build it out centrally if there are numbers there. And just those types of moments, again, I think showed to us that Wales didn't bring the options to have different looks, to handle different opponents, to sort of play their way out of difficult situations. I think they tried the same thing, and when that didn't work, they tried it again. And when that didn't work, then maybe they made adjustments. And you look at, say, Dan James being in for as long as he was, when Denmark go up one goal, and certainly when they're up two goals, they're going to sit a little bit deeper. They're going to force you to find a way through. And I would argue Dan James has a lot of skill sets. That's not one of them. And he's not going to be a a tight technical creator against a compact defense. He wants to run at people. He wants to be in open space. And that change happens so late that to me, it spoke to like, I don't want to take off a big attacking piece because he's Manchester United and has that big name. But there wasn't a lot of like, like, demonstrated, practiced approaches to this opponent is doing this, so we're going to do this. It felt like this opponent is going to do this, and we're going to do what we've been doing the whole time. 
Uh, Graham, Denmark will face the winner of Netherlands against Czech Republic, that game taking place on Sunday. What do you think about the matchup with potentially either of those teams? Do, I mean, this Denmark team is a little stronger than we expected. Could we see a big run from them? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a real possibility. And I think it, you would expect probably Netherlands to come through that 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 match. And I think um, if you were looking at who's the better coached of the two teams, obviously the Netherlands. Have, I, I think the Netherlands, for, for me, <laughs> I had the Netherlands as uh, the biggest flop of this tournament. And actually, I had the, uh, Denmark as the, as the dark horses. So it feels like there's something at, at stake. And if that, if that, uh, that quarterfinal materializes for myself personally, it feels like there's something at stake there. But, um, Netherlands have a lot of individual quality, but I think Denmark are a much better coached team. I've been really impressed with, as I said, with the way Hulmund has, um, adapted the team after Ericsson and then injuries and a shift in, in formation and yet I always think I, I bring it back to the, the Italy game against Wales where I said a mark of a really good well coached team is when you can bring in other players and there's not much of a drop off and everyone kind of knows their roles and responsibilities. I think it's been pretty similar with Denmark where, you know, um, Mikael Damsgaard comes in to, to kind of be the creative spark and all of a sudden he's having an excellent tournament today. Uh, you know, Yusuf Pilsen's not available. Dahlberg scores twice. Um, on the right side, uh, Daniel Vass is not a- available and then Stryger Larsson comes in. He has a good game. So I, I just feel like Denmark are a really solid team. And if that if it's Denmark v Netherlands, I think I'm picking Denmark to come through that one. Woof. Any takers on that one, Taylor? Joe? Joe, uh, how about you? Uh, either I don't know, Ryan. I don't know. I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a prediction guy. I think the Netherlands well, have been good. I think be. Denmark's been good. Let's let's just all be happy and, and, and enjoy a good <laughs> soccer game, you know? <laughs> I'd love to see that. And Denmark going through they'd meet England at the semi final stage, Taylor. Fancy that? Denmark versus England? Oh, Denmark oh. all the way. <laughs> <laughs> and one more note on this before I head off. Uh, Graham, Wales and Scotland are now out. So as a citizen of the United Kingdom, you're now going to be fully supporting England throughout this tournament. I'm, I'm, I'm just assuming that's the case, right? <laughs> that's my response to that. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to move on to Italy against Austria. I'm going to duck out. I've got to head to the patent office for my uh, the website I've got that d- uh, generates Danish names. But uh, Joe, Taylor, Graham, thank you so much. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good one. We're going to hear some messages. We'll be right back. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Once again in this tournament, it's been a couple minutes since last you heard from us, but it's been a couple hours since last we talked to each other. And in that gap, Italy had a decent half. Austria had an excellent half. And then Italy remembered they were a very good attacking team and got two in the first period of overtime. Austria pulled one back, but it wasn't enough. And much like the third Italian War of Independence in 1866, Italy squeaked by after what (laughs) felt like a month of conflict. Still here to talk about uh, that game is Graham Ruthven. 
Hoffman. Hi, Graham. Hello. And breaking down the Third Italian War of Independence is no one, because I didn't know how much of the Wikipedia article it was going to take for me to make a joke, but I knew how much I was prepared to read. So instead, let's just talk about the game, and with me to do so is Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hello, Taylor. All right, so no Italian War of Independence, not even the first one, certainly not the second one, definitely not the third one, but we will talk about Italy's 2-1 win over Austria, and Graham, I will start with this. Um... Ian Dark was doing the commentary here in the U.S., and he didn't have an overly negative tone for most of the game, but I think in the end, his takeaway was that Italy weren't that impressive, it wasn't a great game, Austria fought very hard, but in the end, Italy won. I take issue with that a little bit because I thought Italy were pretty good in the first half and okay in the second. What were your takeaways from this game from an Italy perspective? I still feel like the the correct team won. I mean, I I, I don't think you can argue that the Italy weren't the the better team in this game. I I I get what you're saying about the the narrative. That's the the, the narrative in the UK here is a little bit. Oh, Italy aren't maybe aren't maybe that as good as we all thought they were. Um, and it's certainly true that the the standard of their performance wasn't up to the level it has been earlier in the tournament. But that's maybe just because they have been so good up until this point in the tournament. And I, I still felt like this was a high level of performance from them I think the their squad depth shone through in 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 this match with the, with the changes that they made I think Mancini um he waited quite long to make those changes I think if if, if there's one flaw in in how he managed this game I think that's it I would have made the changes earlier in particular in particular Chiesa coming on felt like quite an obvious change to make and obviously he had a a big bearing in the outcome of this game and and so maybe extra time wouldn't have been required if he'd been on the pitch earlier but I mean these are these are small issues as I said I never personally felt like Italy I know Austria have a goal disallowed but I um I think that was quite a clear offside. I, I, I kind of spotted that quite quickly. That, and that obviously comes from good defending that they're holding their line. You know, that's not just luck. That's, you know, it's, it's good defensive play from Italy. So I, I, I feel like we could maybe go from one extreme to the other in saying that Italy uh, are no longer good and aren't going to win the Euros mm. and are getting knocked out the next round. I, I feel like this was still a pretty good performance from them, even if it had some flaws and weaknesses. So maybe we're not going to go fully from one extreme to the other, but Italy sort of did uh, because they had Berardi starting this game. And Graham, I'm just wondering how much you, if not enjoyed, then just sort of like nodded appropriately as uh, Berardi went for that flying volley, hit it 90 feet over the goal, and was immediately <laughs> subbed out for Chiesa, who then scores the opener. Was that a, a proud moment in the Ruffin household? <laughs> a, a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm not the only one to recognize uh, Chiesa's individual quality, but by the way, nope, the, just you. the goal that Federico Chiesa scores in this this game there is no way Domenico Berardi is scoring that goal <laughs> you know the, the 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 technical quality that Chiesa sh- uh, shows in kind of controlling it and then very quickly firing in the the kind of left foot half volley and and, and knowing and recognizing that he had to get that shot away quickly and just doing it so so brilliantly um yeah not to be mean to Mr Berardi who has proven his worth at this tournament but that is a skill that I think might have been beyond him. Uh, since you won't be mean to him, I will just say I like the idea of them cutting to Berardi on the sidelines and him just mouthing like, yeah, I get it. I get it now. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Chiesa can start. Uh, Joe, uh, apologies for the delay as we made fun of Berardi. Uh, I will ask you this then. Uh, with the lineups that when the teams came out, were there any surprises for you or did you expect this sort of to go the way it did with the teams that were in there and then the way maybe the first half played out? Uh, were there surprises for you or was it pretty much uh, par for the course? 
In terms of the lineup for Italy, Austria didn't really surprise me with their personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Italy, the biggest question was Locatelli or Verratti. Are we going to see Verratti back in yeah. this midfield after we saw him start against Wales? And, and we didn't know what that would look like. And we do see Verratti. And I, I thought I thought Verratti was good. He's always good on some level, right? But I think yeah. a lot of this game, we were missing, for Italy were missing this mobile left central midfielder. Locatelli moves a little bit more. He's able to step forward and he'll draw players out with his movement instead of just his on-ball work. And Locatelli does have some really important passing contributions in extra time for Italy. And then those are those are critical in some of their uh, opportunities in the box. But that was the biggest question mark for me. And it's kind of a win-win, right? If you have Locatelli, he's been balling in this tournament. If you have Verratti, he's this offensive nucleus and, and nucleus and you can play with him. But that, that was the biggest question. And then in terms of how the first half actually went, I was surprised at how aggressive Austria started this game. They were not they were not pulling back at the beginning of this match. They stepped forward. They were on the front foot. They were really aggressive. Like I said, they weren't being pinned in their own half. They didn't allow Italy to generate consistent possession in the attacking third until about 20 minutes into this game. And this, this felt a little bit like Wales-Denmark to me, where it took Denmark a while to kind of grow into the match. It's kind of a cliche, but it took them a while to really find the ball and start to do good things with it. Italy finally had those moments around the 20th minute, started getting a lot of possession in the final third, really good counter-pressure, then just trying to break through that block, which they couldn't do until extra time. And then it shifted back. This game was just so fluid in how it went because then Austria started to attack more and they got out on the front foot a little bit more as the first half wore on. And they were, I think, the better team, at least for stretches of the second half. And that's one of the biggest reasons why I enjoyed this game, just because it was a little hard to pinpoint one team being dominant for large stretches versus the other. And I don't want, I genuinely do not want to ask this in a hot, takey way, Graham. I'm trying to ask this in an honest way. So Verratti starts this game, and I think I saw a lot of people frustrated with his slowness on the ball, which I thought was maybe unfair, because I think through the first 60 minutes, he had, he was 64 for 66 and had 88 touches. So that to me says it was a lot of one-touch passing and moving, but Joe, I think you hit it on the head with that maybe he was just actually physically a little bit slower. So then we have uh, Locatelli coming in in the second half. Graham, do you feel like that was Mancini recognizing that maybe he didn't get it right? Or is it just the case that Italy have so many good players, especially in that midfield, that you could sort of start anybody and then make that change like midway through the second half just because you have the depth of talent there to allow you to change some people out? I'm I'm leaning towards the latter. I mean, I don't think anyone looked at at Verratti starting this game and, and thought... In the same way that I looked at Steve Clark's team for the Czech Republic and <laughs> thought that you know something had de- yeah. had gone desperately wrong in in his uh, thought process. I mean, it's it's Marco Verratti, you know, and he he can come into that that midfield, and there's not too much of a difference in in the role that he plays to the one Locatelli plays. I'm not saying there's there aren't differences between the two players, but the, you know you can you can fit them into the same uh, into the same unit. I, I I do, however, think, and maybe I don't have the tactical chops to actually analyze and uh, an, analyze this properly. But when I watch Italy, I I just and I said this right at the start of the tournament. I I just feel with Locatelli, there's just a little bit better balance to that midfield. I really like that that midfield unit of Brella. Uh, Jorginho and Locatelli, and I, and I do think it is maybe because of the the forward thrust that Locatelli brings to that to that team. When, but watching Verratti, I mean, he didn't have a bad game. You're right, um, but I I did feel like he was just slightly a, a little too ponderous, and it, and it felt like Jorginho was playing as many forward passes as as he was, which is 
is maybe not a it's not a, not a great thing for an attack minded midfielder. So I I personally would play Locatelli over Verratti at the moment, but that doesn't mean that Verratti can't. Uh, or doesn't have a role to play in this Italy team, and you're right. If some, if, you know, it gets to the 60 minute mark and it's not working for Locatelli in a game, then you, you can quite easily put Verratti in there as well. Joe, my feeling was that this game was going to be about Italy having patience and not getting sort of frustrated because Austria, I think, were going to keep doing what they did in the first half. In the second, I think they worked even harder and they made a few little adjustments that fr- that could have frustrated Italy further. And so that they didn't get opened up. They didn't leave space, Italy. They have the one moment uh, for the goal for Arnautovic that's called back because of VAR. But overall, it did seem like this, this game just came down to eventually Italy found a way through. Are there things you think they could could have done earlier was there anything you saw as a potential opportunity for them or did this seem to you like Austria just being an incredibly difficult team to break down and then Italy eventually found a way to make it happen for me a lot of credit should go to Austria in this game and how they defended and how they played and how compact they were but also how willing they were to step forward and pressure the ball and then break out quickly and vertically and and all the things that I think this Austria team does really well or can do really well For Italy, I thought they did a lot of things well in the final third because that's where a lot of this game came down to is their ability to break through that block. I think they did a lot of things well. I like some of the movement off the ball. I like some of the passing options that they had and some of the passes they strung together. What really stuck out to me in this game, though, was some breakdowns in individual decision making. Right, Italy had some chances in the first half, but a lot of the chances, a lot of the shots came from pretty deep, from, from pretty well outside the box. And I'm thinking specifically of Insigne here, cutting inside on that right foot from the left wing or the left half space. It kind of felt like he was running the same play over and over again on repeat, just trying to get it right, where he'd cut inside, he'd shoot from distance. He'd cut inside and he'd shoot from That's distance. That's what he does. <laughs> it, it is, it is. And sometimes it works really well. But in this game, it felt like he was trying to force a square peg into a round hole, right? Not only are you taking a pretty low quality shot from distance there, but I think there were a couple moments in this game where he, he or other Italian players shooting from distance missed out on a, a nice slipped ball into the box or missed out on a passing option that could have led to a better shot just to take that shot from distance instead. So there were some of those little nitpicky moments in here from Italy. But at the end of the day, the constant truth in soccer is that it has always been and it will always be hard to break down a a compact defensive team, whether they're pressing or whether they're sitting deep, especially when they're back in their own third. And Austria put together a lot of really comprehensive, collective, cohesive defensive moments in this game. And that's hard to break down if you're Italy. It really is. It really is. And and I would draw the analogy with like the uh I'm sure there's a better way to to put it that doesn't make it seem like a scam, but like the the shell game, the cup game when you put like the ball out of the cup and then you move them around and the person has to track and see where the where the ball ended up. Like that it seems like that's what Italy tried to do with their attack. They have so many different options and so many different attackers who can do so many different things that if you're the defense trying to keep an eye on all of them, one little breakdown, one little gap opening up is all they sort of need. But if you're Austrian, especially in the second half, if you're just not trying to play out in the face of Italy's press, if you're just content to hoof that ball long and then make them come back at you and hope they get frustrated, it was sort of like the the cup game was being played with translucent cups and Austria could just track everything they were doing the whole time. And again, that's where I think Italy deserves some credit. Mancini deserves some credit for making some adjustments. Uh, may, even if it's not from a like tactical, they change up their entire approach, that they're still able to like remain calm, not panic, not let the moment overtake them and eventually get the result. I think for the team, that gives a lot of credit, deserves a lot of credit 
Graham, for you on an individual level, we can talk about Austria in a second, but for Italy specifically, were there any standout performers from you and why was it Spinazzola? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he did have a, an excellent game. And even when Italy were, were struggling a little bit in, in, in normal time to to find an outlet, he he was the outlet, you know, he, he down that left side. He's had he's had an excellent tournament all the all the way through, and um, you're right, they were they were looking for him a lot. I thought it was I thought it was interesting the way that the the, the Chiesa goal comes about, which is obviously a, a Spinazzola assist, and I think Mancini deserves a lot of credit for the role that he played in that goal in the way that he he was pushing uh, players forward to form a, a five man attack, and so it looks like. Alaba and I think it's maybe Hinteragger who who it looks like they've lost keys at the back post, but it's just purely a case of they've been drawn inside to try and keep hold of the the attackers that they're being overloaded with, and so that was key, especially getting Alaba in inside, push pulling him inside was was crucial to creating that space. And Spinazzola, the reason I mention that now is because Spinazzola, the 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 way he recognizes that opportunity and gets the ball to Chiesa is, is fantastic. So as much as his energy down the left side. Um, was very important and was maybe the most eye-catching thing about his performance. He also, he also had the final product and, and that proved to be key. I think the thing that I found most impressive about that first goal, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Chiesa, who has the great control, the great cutback, the strong finish. It's that if you go back and watch it, that ball from Spinazzola, Spinazzola spots the run before Chiesa does. And it's because Alaba gets pulled inside, as you said, Graham, but Spinazzola immediately sees that space and you can watch him hit the ball and then... uh um I've forgotten who it was. Chiesa, there we go. Chiesa, like you can see him kind of wake up and pop to it. Uh, so it's great, uh, awareness from Spinazzola. I think it's also him who plays the ball, the big ball wide for the sequence that leads to the second goal. So I thought he was incredibly impressive. Uh, Joe, I've made Graham talk about Spinazzola, so I will allow you to talk about whomever else you would like to talk about from Italy. <laughs> No, I mean, I think there were a lot of strong performances in this game. I, I do think Jorginho was good. In this one, I think with the way Austria tried to compress space and the, the way they tried to really get snug and get tight to Italy's midfield, Sabitzer was tracking Jorginho for a, a good stretch of this game. Baumgartner was too at times. Conrad Leimer, I mean, it was very fluid for Austria and how they, they played. But we've talked about Jorginho before and how he's not really, he doesn't catch a lot of eyes, right? And I think for those of us that have watched him at club level with Napoli or Chelsea or with Italy on the international level, you kind of know that. He is just a cog that helps this team tick, but I think he was very effective in possession and also in counter-pressing moments. I talked about with Rodri in Spain earlier in this tournament, that number six is so key to how possession-dominant teams try to counter-press and keep the ball in the final third. Jorginho is very aware. He's not the most athletic guy. He's not the fastest guy, but he's quick and he reads the game very well, and I think we saw that in this game. I also saw in the 90 plus four minute, uh, it's confusing when we have extra time as well. Uh, but right before the, the, the full time whistle goes and then we have our break and then we have extra time. Uh, Italy have possession. Jorginho wants them to move the ball forward. They're in and around, uh, the Austria box and he wants them to be more decisive. 
it doesn't really happen. The ball gets recycled. And when he gets the ball again, that's when he goes on that run and he almost draws the penalty. It's what leads to that free kick. But even that moment, Joe, for me was, was just sort of Jorginho, I, I think, trying to take the game by the scruff of the neck and, and making something happen. In the end, it's not him who does it. It's the entire team, I would say. Uh, we should spend a moment talking about Austria for a second as well. Joe, the question that Graham and I were discussing before we started recording that I'm not sure either of us has an answer to, so we'll throw to you, is what did you think Austria were doing in particular to sort of flummox Italy? Or was it just a everybody back, everybody work really hard, nobody slack off, and we'll end up making this at least go to extra time? No, it was this It was this really well-rounded defensive game plan, I think, from Franco Foda. He didn't just say, we're going to sit back and we're going to compress space and we're going to pull a turkey here and hopefully do it better than they did in the group stage. I mean, they, they actually did step forward and press. And I think you can tell... Man, you can really tell that a lot of these Austrian players play in the Bundesliga, right? I mean, maybe it's stereotypical. Yeah. It probably is. But that the idea of the Bundesliga, Bundesliga being a very transition-based league, right, of, of them being very keyed in on moments to step and play direct and be vertical and compact and tight you know, vertically and then push forward from there, that's who this Austria team is, especially once they've shifted to that back four, which they did for the last group stage game, moving David Alaba over to left back instead of that center, center back in a back three. They are this really dangerous team in in the way that they swarm the ball and the way that they get forward in transition. I think we saw that early on in this game. I talked about them trying to protect the midfield and force Italy to play the ball outside instead of being able to build through those central spaces. I think they did that very well for large stretches of this game. They also got forward and press, and they also did do a good job of working hard, moving as a compact unit, shifting side to side defensively, and absorbing pressure. So it, it was a very flexible performance from Austria. They didn't press high up the field for 90 minutes, for 120 minutes, but they did a lot of the different individual defensive component components well, and then it, it just kind of breaks in second half, in, in the stoppage time, in extra time, excuse me. It just kind of falls apart at that moment, and we saw Italy's attacking quality shine through. Uh, and when we talk about the hard work, I thought uh, Limer on the right, who then finished the game on the left, the, his engine was insane to me. There's moments even in extra time when he is sprinting 30 yards, then sprinting 30 yards back. And you expect that to end with him hands on hips like, oh, I'm exhausted. And then he continues to run. And that made me feel lazier than I felt in a very long time, sitting down and watching all these games and not really running. So credit to him and credit to David Alaba, I thought, for getting involved in the attack, helping facilitate those attacks, carrying the ball forward on occasion, but then also making critical defensive plays in key moments. Uh, I thought they were two pretty standout players. Uh, Graham, anybody on Austria, uh, either that we've already discussed or haven't discussed, that you would like to spotlight before we move on? I thought um, the goalkeeper, Daniel Bachmann, made a, a couple mm-hmm. of really good saves. And there's a weird quirk today, actually. Of, of the four goalkeepers who played today at the Euros, three of them had spells on loan at provincial Scottish <laughs> <That's> clubs. <right. laughs> Which was really weird. Like, I know maybe no one else cares about that, but for me as a Scottish football fan, that was really strange that three out of the four Daniel Bachman was spent a loan period at Kilmarnock Danny Ward was on loan at Aberdeen early in his career and Casper Schmeichel was at Falkirk so that's that's really bizarre but Bachman who actually Danny Ward and Schmeichel obviously I, I rate very highly Bachman I didn't before this tournament I have to say he wasn't very good at Kilmarnock but he had, I thought he had a pretty good performance today. There was at least a, one fantastic save. I can't actually remember who it was from, but it was one very brilliant save in this game from him. And I guess they needed him to be on form um, to keep Italy out. And Dragovic, I thought, was was really good as well. I, I just thought that the, the, the energy in the centre of the pitch from Schlager and, and Grealich 
who um, I think Joe called the Austrian Grealish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> obviously, very different players, but sound uh, quite similar when you say them. Um, I thought I, I thought that the, the energy they they brought was was just fantastic. So maybe maybe I, given that I said I didn't ever feel like Italy were at much risk here. That's maybe playing down what Austria did in this match. I think that I thought they played a very a very good match. This is probably the best we saw of them at this tournament. Graham, a couple things there. First of all, for as much as Ryan shoehorns in Wimbledon and England conversations, you are more than welcome to shoe in, <laughs> uh, shoe in Scottish provincial clubs. Uh, and I, and I think especially given the BBC's coverage of this game and how in depth it was and not at all focused on England, I think, yeah, go ahead and throw some <laughs> Scotland in there as well. I really enjoyed from Grillich. Maybe being a little bit like Jack Grealish, there's the moment when I think it's Baumgartner goes down. Or I think it was Baumgartner who was cramping. Uh, Italy don't play the ball out, and so Grealish goes in for that foul, and is, definitely knows what he's doing in terms of stopping play so that they can get medics on the field, but also just leaves a little bit in there to let Italy know his displeasure. I thought that's the, the type of play you need in these types of games, just to let Italy know you're still there and not let them get too dominant. So... Overall, I thought a good game from Austria, but a resounding win in terms of Italy not letting the pressure overtake them, not getting frustrated, but instead finding a way to win. Gentlemen, anything else we would like to talk about from Italy's 2-1 to win over Austria? Did anyone see the expected goals for this game? I don't oh think boy. I've ever seen this in my life. It was 2.0 and 1.0. So Symmetry, baby. Yep. Joe. Oh, go ahead, Graham. Sorry. No, no, I'm finished. I, I just haven't, I've never seen that before when it's so obviously, it's so on point. It was totally correct. We got, we weren't shortchanged out of this one. I'm really glad that Graham brought this up, XG, because first of all, I'm assuming that 2.0 versus 1.0 makes Joe very happy. But Joe, also, I've been meaning to ask you, whenever a commentator says he should have done better there, does that, does that trigger you or are you still yes. okay with that phrase? Yeah, it, it, it triggers me so much because not even setting aside the math, like have these folks played soccer, right? It's not, it's not just that I'm bad a lot of times at playing soccer and I am and I know how hard it is to shoot a ball at a non-professional level but are you are you kidding me like it's so hard to score a goal in soccer there there are so few times where you can say he he should have scored that and be actually correct then you add in the fact that it's proven so it's not just personal experience that can disprove that whole statement of he should have scored there statistically that's just not True. Yeah, yeah, Taylor. It it winds me. It winds me up. It grinds my gears. Makes note to never say should have done better. <laughs> right. That's down. Written that down. All yep. right. Thank uh, you. Uh, Thank well, you well, Graham reflects on what he's just written down, and and Joe's blood pressure calms down. We will take a break to hear from some, from today's sponsors, and then we will be back to preview tomorrow's games. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light as air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. We are done talking about today's games. Why do I say today's games? Because I kind of forgot what day it is. It's Saturday. It feels like it could be any day because time has lost all meaning. But tomorrow's Sunday. We've got two more games. At noon, we've got the Netherlands versus the Czech Republic. Then at 3 p.m., it's Belgium versus Portugal. Gentlemen, let's talk Netherlands, Czech Republic first. The way I have it, uh, on paper at least, will be the Dutch in a 3-5-2. And the question is maybe who starts alongside Memphis up top for the Czechs. I'm assuming it will be four, two, three, one, or thereabouts. Joe, any disagreement on that front? Not at all. You you already highlighted the one question I really have for Frank DeBoer's Netherlands team. Who's it going to be next to Memphis Depay? Is it going to be Danielle Malin? Is it going to be Veghorst? I know which one Graham wants to see, but uh, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly which attacking approach Frank DeBoer will choose to go with tomorrow. Yeah, Graham, how how strong is your feeling towards Danielle Malin? Like, <laughs> if he doesn't start, will you then be rooting for the checks? Uh, no, they've caused me too much pain at this tournament. <laughs> <laughs> See, I wasn't sure if it was one of those things where, like, you now want them to go further because that makes Scotland look better. Like, oh, if the Czech that? Republic wins, if they win 2 0 here, does that make Scotland as good as the Dutch? Uh, I mean, we drew with the Dutch before the tournament, See, and then, we go. so, you know, we're already we as go. good as the Dutch. <laughs> uh, well, if the Czechs were to get a win here, uh, a couple things I thought would be uh, important to spotlight. The first would be the need to limit Frank de Jong's, uh, like, basically freedom in the middle, because a big part of the way the Dutch have played so far, to me, was pretty fast, pretty direct, pretty vertical, and then using Frankie de Jong to receive the ball in space by spreading the field. He tends to have a few yards of space around him he can turn and then drive forward or play the ball forward and if you can sort of limit his ability to turn if you can make him have to make decisions a little bit faster than he wants to I think you can disrupt what the Dutch want to do uh, that's one key point for me Graham anything you think the Netherlands should be wary of or what the Czechs could do to frustrate the Dutch well, one key um, talking point ahead of this match is that the, the Czech Republic are missing Jan Burrell, who is their left back. He is suspended for this match. And so going up against um, Denzel Dumfries or Kevin Kirkcaldy, as I like to call him, in this match um, with a makeshift left back doesn't seem ideal. <laughs> um, so that that is one area where I think the Netherlands should be really looking to, to go for the throat even more than they have done already with Dumfries because obviously he's pretty much been deployed as a as a right winger at, the, at at this tournament so I'll be keeping an eye on 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 that side um and then uh, Gini Wijnaldum who's had a, an excellent Euros he is a very different player for the Netherlands than he was for Liverpool however 
Newcastle fans who remember how he was for for them are, are probably uh, you know they they'll, they'll remember this player because he he was much more attack minded for Newcastle than he was for Liverpool. He's he's very much a part of that attacking unit with um, Memphis and Malin or Weghorst, whichever one it is. And um, the other observation, I know I've been quite down on, on Weghorst in, in this tournament. I am a big fan of Daniel Malin. But what I would say is, before this tournament, it seemed like there was a narrative of the Netherlands not exactly having m- many um, great attackers and maybe lacking a great centre-forward. And I think that's true. You know, they don't have anyone in this, of the standard of... Kane or, uh, you know, one of the, one of the great, sco- uh, Lewandowski or Lukaku or anyone like that. But I do think that I do like the variety of attack, attackers they've got between Weg, Weghorst, who's very different to Memphis Depay, who's very different to Daniel Malin, and then Wijnaldum backing them up, and then De Jong supporting them as well. So I, I do, I, I've, I've, I've been surprised by how much I've liked that attacking unit from the Netherlands, and I think that could be what gets them over the line in this game. Uh, one other thing I thought that maybe could be a problem for the Czech Republic, uh, Vladimir Derida against Croatia was the one who tended to drop in track Luka Modric, not let him have time and space. Uh, he is carrying an injury and is potentially doubtful for this game. If it's not him, then it's probably going to be, uh, Kral. Uh, the, he of these kind of sideshow Bob hair, semi sideshow Bob, I'll call him. Uh, but he is definitely not as mobile, uh, and not as quick. So tracking Frankie de Jong might be a little bit more of a difficult task for him. Uh, Joe, anything else? you wanted to get to from this game i'm curious to see how the czech republic approached this game defensively right because i think back to that game they had against england on match day three of the group stage and they pressed and england played through that press the netherlands have a lot of talent to do something very similar to what england did and so will the czech republic choose to, to high press and just back themselves to be able to win the ball high up the field and not get played through or will they decide to play a little bit deeper and try to have the Netherlands break them down in more of a mid block or a low block? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm guessing we'll find out pretty early on in that game tomorrow, and I'm excited to see what happens. And one, I'm not going to make it a specific prediction, but one final little thing for me, going back to the Netherlands 2-0 win over Austria. In that game, I felt like Nathan Ake was slow on the ball at times, dribbled a bit too much, wasn't quick to keep the ball moving, and uh, speculated that maybe in the knockout rounds that could come back to haunt them. So just worth keeping an eye on if he's moving the ball fast or if he's sitting on it and trying to be a little bit overly elaborate. So uh, a thing to keep an eye on in the Netherlands versus the Czech Republic at noon, Then we've got Belgium versus Portugal at three. And this might sound like a ridiculous question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Has something happened to Belgium? Because the couple different previews I read have crazy fluctuation in who will start this game. Some have Denier sitting and Boyata starting. Some have both Hazards starting. Some have neither Hazard starting. Is it essentially just the case that Belgium have so many players that so many people could start in so many different positions? Or has like half the squad come down with COVID and I've just missed it? <laughs> no, I think it's just that they have lots of options. And okay. also, and also, I think uh, Roberto uh, Martinez is maybe a little bit cloudy on on a, on a couple of positions. I mean, the one that that stands out to me is that that left wing back position, which to me, I mean, I know he maybe didn't have the the best first game. I think he started and didn't do that well. But Yannick Carrasco has been one of the you know one of the best players in Spain in that position last season. So to have, um, I think I saw a preview that had um, like Torgan Hazard in that left wing back position seems peculiar to me but um yeah they've they've got options um even if they are calling up 35 year old former Spurs defenders who now play in the Chinese Super League they do generally have a very strong squad 
Joe, who from that strong squad do you think could make the difference tomorrow? Oh man, should I just list off yeah, the sure. starting eleven, or I mean the attacking options? I think I think Lukaku obviously is going to be just a, a massive player in this game. I'm curious to see exactly how he's used. Right, he's been that central striker, that number nine for most of the time for for Belgium, but he's also been shifted over to that right side for stretches. And I think he'll start as the center striker in this game against Portugal. But depending on how the game goes, if Belgium need a goal and they're trying to to maybe draw Portugal forward and then attack in transition or break out into space, I wouldn't be surprised to see Lukaku try to get in that right channel, that right half space, and maybe isolate himself against Ruben Dias or, or find the space between uh, Portugal's left back and their left center back. I think that could be someone to watch. And then obviously, always keep always keep at least half an eye, maybe a full eye on Kevin De Bruyne as your other eye goes around and watches the rest of this game. He, I mean, nothing really needs to be said, so I'm just going to say Kevin De Bruyne. And then, Graham, uh, since we've talked a little bit about Belgium, for Portugal, not even what do you think they will do, what would you like to see them do in this game? We know Belgium will have strength. We know they can possess. We know they can counterattack. Lots of different attacking options for them. Would you rather see Portugal like make this a difficult game as we've seen them do? Would you rather them try to go at Belgium and make something happen early? What are you hoping to see from this one? I mean, I'm hoping to see a 5-5 draw. Yeah, that was a stupid question. That was a dumb question. Let me back that up. Let me just say, like, what are some key things you would like to see from Portugal aside from a 5-5 result? Okay, so one of the things I'm looking out for with this team tomorrow is the the right-back position where um, Nelson Semedo came off injured against France. Uh, Yao Cancelo. I'm a little bit confused about Yao Cancelo because he tested positive for COVID before the tournament. He seems to have been ruled out of the tournament, but yet Sergio Busquets did the same and he's back in the Spain. I'm going to need some clarification. I couldn't find anything on that. Anyway, Yalconcelo's not in the squad, so he's not playing. Ricardo Pereira was not included in the squad. He's he's not fit enough. And so that means Diogo Dallo might start at right back. He made his uh, Portugal debut, I think, off the bench, his senior debut in the game against France. And that is... A lot of pressure. He's going to be facing, uh, you know, Eden Hazard and Romelu Lukaku, and uh, even though De Bruyne's probably not going to be on that side, um, it's 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 a it's a tall order for him, and 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 what probably will be his first start for for Portugal. So that's that's one thing I think they're going to need to afford him quite a bit of protection. The other thing I'll be keeping an eye on is Ruben Diaz, who has had an excellent season for Manchester City. It goes without saying, he won I think the Player of the Year award in the Premier League last season. He has had a little bit of an issue defending against pace for Portugal at this tournament. And so I'm wondering how he's going to deal with Lukaku, who's obviously, once he gets turned with the ball and runs, running, uh, gets running at you, he's one of the most formidable in, in, in the whole tournament. So that's another thing that I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on. And I'm interested to see who Fernando Santos is going to use as his midfield spark to provide, um, service to the likes of, well, Cristiano Ronaldo, obviously, because Bruno Fernandes has had a pretty poor tournament so far and might not even start this game. He might um, go with kind of Yao Moutinho or Bernardo Silva um, as the creative spark and then Diego, uh, Diego Jota and obviously Ronaldo as the as the as the front men. So I, I think there are some decisions for Fernando Santos to, to go for. One one decision that I think has been made for him is that Renato Sanchez will most likely start this game given how good he was against France. Yeah, I would agree with with. Pretty much everything you just said, if not all of it. And I would emphasize the the right-back uh, spot for Portugal because the the time that Belgium have looked, I think, the most 
under the cosh in this in this tournament was when Denmark went at them early, got that early goal, and really applied pressure, tried to force them back. A big part of that was uh, Voss stepping high, and it was Torgan Hazard at that time as the left wing back, or right wing back, excuse me, who was sort of being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and he couldn't then link up to the attack. And if Portugal could do that here, I think it takes away some of the attacking momentum, but Graham, as you spotlighted, that's sort of dependent on Semedo being in there, having the pace to be able to do that, because Dalo is a good defender, is a good attacker, but not as pacey, not maybe as as good in the attacking sense as Semedo, in my opinion, at least. So how Portugal can sort of have some influence and disrupt what Belgium want to do, uh, I think makes this game really fascinating. And I think I have to lean a little bit Belgium just because I have a feeling you're right that we won't see Bruno Fernandes. And since I love that man so much, uh, any team that doesn't play him, I no longer like. <laughs> Seems fair. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Joe, any other notes from you for Belgium versus Portugal? I'm just excited, man. I'm excited for both yeah, of man. these games tomorrow. I think they're going to be really fun. And now that I've said that, they're both going to be nil-nil headed into extra time. <laughs> but still, these games have the potential to be so much fun to watch. And I'm just excited to watch them and talk about them with you fellas. Uh, well, Graham already said it. it's going to be 5-5 in both games. So oh, we perfect. have yeah, that no, we're good. to look That's forward sorted. to. Uh, Graham, since Ryan isn't here, any anti-English things you want to get into before we, we call this one a day? No, Tuesday is going to be painful enough for them. So, <laughs> well, on that uh, positive note, I guess, uh, Graham Ruthven, thank you for uh, seeing out the day with myself and Joe Lowry. That is not a problem. It's always a joy. And we are Joe Lowry. Thank you for seeing out the day with myself and Graham Ruthven. <laughs> you got it, Taylor. Listeners, the same to you all, and we'll talk to you very soon. <laughs> <laughs> 